The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to create a life that's intentional and dynamic? Welcome to The Intentional Spirit with your host, Reverend Temple Hayes. And welcome everyone, all of you intentional spirits out there. Thank you so much for being with us. And we just love and value you um, as a listening audience. And we thank you so much for sharing our show with others and, and bringing us uh, great people of uh, tremendous depth and substance, such as our guest today, August Turek. We're just delighted that he is here. August, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Well, I, you are uh, such a person of accomplishment, and I like to, with the show being Intentional Spirit, you know, we often talk about the value of being intentional regardless of external circumstances or conditions, but to keep moving forward with your, your own imprint, your own template, and it's very apparent and obvious that you have done just that. Um, tell us about your life when you were starting out? Were you always interested in a, a, a mysticism type of life or spirituality of any kind? Or um, where has your path come from? And share more about you. Well, I grew up as Catholic. And then I, a big life-changing event for me, I came from a large Catholic family in Pittsburgh. I was the oldest of eight children. Um, and when I was 14 years old, I, uh, I, I won a scholarship to go up to New England to a boarding school to a, called the Hotchkiss School up in Lakeville, Connecticut. It was an extremely traumatic and earth-shattering experience for me and pretty much uh, made me question everything. When I got to the University of Pittsburgh, which um, it was 1970, and the overhang of the 60s was still there, and everybody was smoking pot and and uh, talking about Allen Ginsberg's poetry and reading Ken Kesey and Herman Hess. And, and I got kind of swept up in all that, uh, not so much the drugs, but everything else. And I really started questioning everything. I got, and I decided, really, I, I remember being naively thinking about it, that I was going to take time out from thinking about my career and everything else, and I was going to just take courses that were going to teach me the meaning of life and how to live a purposeful life and how to make sure that I wouldn't have any regrets and how to be a real man and all this stuff. And I would knock this out in a couple, you know, maybe take me six months or so. (laughs) And I literally did that. I started taking courses. I just started taking courses in philosophy and religion and spirituality and reading everything I could get my hands on. And now here I am, you know, 66 years old. I'm still at it. So, um, but I, I definitely back in college, um, one of the things I came to the conclusion of eventually was that I wasn't going to figure things out, that if, you, if I was going to get to the bottom of things, it was going to be a spiritual answer, and it had to be something that was experiential, and, uh, um, and so I definitely got into and that's how I got into mysticism. 
It's been a fascinating journey for you. I know that you uh, delve deep into your, your past also with your book, your first book, Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks, One CEO's Quest for Meaning and Authenticity. I love how you've merged both worlds, you know, because often uh, you hear people say, oh, you know, I want to be a teacher or I want to do lectures or I want to offer meditation and I'm trying to decide between the business sector and the spiritual sector. And I, I love the blending, you know, and 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 how you've been able to merge those very things um, in your life, not only integrating as a as a person, but also in how you've been able to show the course for, for other people. When did your first book come out? My first book came out in 2013, and I am—I <clears throat> was—I'm uh, kind of an accidental. All this is, you know. I, of course, I get into this in the book because I say, "My God, uh, if I look back at my life, you know, I—I I was very, very successful in business. I was an entrepreneur. I ended up with a couple of companies, and I, so I say I was very good at planning all my life to do that. But I never had a plan for my own life. I had a mission for my life, um, and uh, and so everything has just kind of been accidental. What happened for me is uh, in 2004, I was coaching college students on spirituality, and one of my college students suggested, uh, half-jokingly, I think, but 90% seriously, that I wonder if that makes any sense, that I entered I this understood. contest, <laughs> that, that the Templeton Foundation was offering this contest called uh, the, uh, the Power of Purpose Essay Contest. So in 3,500 words or less, you had to answer the question, what is the purpose of life? And uh, when I looked at the rules and everything, I said, oh, my goodness, it's open to previously published material. It's open to professional writers. It's, open, uh, it's been going on for 18 months. Um, I, I only have a week or 10 days. Um, but I took a crack at it, and I was getting nowhere. And another student said to me, by the way, as I, every time, all my stories have my students teaching me rather than me teaching my students. And um, there's a lesson there, too. But he said, why don't you just write up that story about Brother John and the monastery that you like telling so much? So I wrote this story in about 20, 48 hours, and I polished it for 48 hours, and the due date was looming, and I just fired it off. And about six months later, I get a telephone call that I'd won the $100,000 grand prize. I'd gone up against 10,000 essays from 47 countries from professional writers, and I'd won. Oh, and that right. radically changed my life uh, in the sense that I became... The essay was reprinted in the best of Christian and the best of Catholic writings. And then one weekend, I just wrote up what I thought was a white paper on why I thought these Trappist monks who I was hanging out with so much were so darn good in business without trying. <laughs> and, uh, and Forbes magazine picked it up, and they ran it as a four-part article, and, and it went viral. And then Columbia Business School called me and said, we'd like to turn it into a book. And I published Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks. And then I was interviewed by the BBC about the book, and they liked what I was saying, and they said, will you come back and be a contributor? And then Forbes said, can you be a contributor? So I'm a contributor for Forbes on leadership. I'm a contributor on the BBC. And all of this was unplanned. All of this just kind of unfolded. And that's one of the themes of Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks, that if you seek first the kingdom of heaven, um, and if you don't like the word heaven, and if you're not Christian, if you think higher purpose, if you seek first the spiritual intentionality, as you would put it, all the other stuff will fall into place, but it takes a tremendous lot of faith to live that way. Oh yeah, because it's it's all the 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 mind chatter, right, and the uh, the doubts and the and looking for a tribe, you know, that kind of is in alignment with that. But to 
to let go of so many of the agendas of what it's supposed to look like, especially, you know, today we live in such celebrity itis and, you know, of the way to make it is to have your own TV thing or, you know, whatever. Um, And where you're saying that the strongest indicator within your own soul is to just say, I'm here to fulfill my mission, bring it on. Absolutely. I tell a story in Business Secrets of Trappist Monks when I got a telephone call. I, what I did is I ended up giving, I had my, um, before I started my own businesses in the late 80s, I uh, was, um, um, I, I did some lectures on my spiritual path at the local universities and the kids loved them and they asked me to come back and I started coaching them for free on a volunteer basis. And just then I get a telephone call from some of my friends. I'd been one of the I have a career in television. I was one of the founders of MTV, as a matter of fact, and, and I was one of the founders of what's now the A&E Network. And so I knew all these people in New York and other places, and this guy, I was living in Raleigh at the time, though, and I get a telephone call, and he says, he said, I'm taking, my friend said, I'm taking over United Press International. Um, you might be, uh, some of the older people might remember UPI. It was the competitor of what's now the AP. Of the AP. And he said, I'm going to bring it out of bankruptcy, and I've got $150 million to spend, and I'm putting the band back together, and I want you to be executive vice president. And he offered me all kinds of money and all the perks and everything. He said, but one thing, you got to move to Washington, D.C. And I said, Joe, I can't move to Washington, D.C. And he said, why? And he said, because I, said, because I just promised these kids that I'd coach them on spirituality. And there was a grand total of three kids, by the way, at that time that I promised. And he said to me, why don't you just come up here? He said, why don't you just come up here and do whatever it is you do at one of the local universities up here? And I said, why don't you move UPI to Raleigh? And he said, oh, Molly, his wife's name was Molly. And he said, Molly will never go for that. Oh, I said, Joe, there's plenty of women down here. Uh, if my students are interchangeable, then I guess his wife was interchangeable. And so I turned down the job of a lifetime to, to coach three kids on spirituality. Why? Because my teachers all told me and drilled into my head, you put your spiritual life first. Mm. You seek first the kingdom of heaven. And if I hadn't done that, of course, it, it, I wouldn't have, all the other things wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have started my own company. I wouldn't have, frankly, gotten rich. All the stuff, that, I wouldn't have been a writer. All the stuff would have been different. And, uh, but, I, but, I, but I'm telling you right now, back in 1986 or 87 or whatever it was when I did that, man, I didn't feel like a hero. I felt like, well, what? You know, and, I, I, and there's no yeah. one to turn to to talk to because, you know, if you ask people for advice, what are they going to say? Take the job! Of course. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, and so one of the, it's one of the reasons why I emphasize so much in my book, the value of community. You need to, you need community. You need people with your, so that you, people who aren't going to say take the job, people who are going to support you when you want to put your spiritual life first. And I, I love the, the, the where you're focusing on, on your book with living your mission as, as well as seeking you first, the kingdom of heaven, um, and um, to align with other, with other people that really get and see you. And what are some of the other uh, ideas that you learn while you're on this quest for meaning and authenticity? Well, to me, the most important things that I learned is the purpose of life. And this is what I, I put together. And what happened to me is in 1996, um, one of my college, again, one of my college students uh, called up and said, hey, we're going on a team-building exercise. We're going to jump out of an airplane and parachute, and we want you to come. 
Well, as I said in the book, I said I was brave enough to jump out of an airplane, but not brave enough to tell those kids I was too darn old to be jumping on airplanes. So I smashed my ankle to smithereens in, this, in a skydiving accident, two compound fractures, and um, I ended up in the hospital. I started having panic attacks, horrible panic attacks and tremendous depression and sense of, of despair and all this. Stuff. I couldn't figure out what it was, and finally it hit me that I was facing my mortality for the very first time. And even though I'd been on this spiritual path for all these years, suddenly it didn't. Ha- it wasn't seeming to help, you know, which which only exacerbated the problem. So when I got out, I was I went. I, the panic went away, but the sense of despair. I call this now my two-year dark night of the soul. So I entered into this downward spiral of of, of this dark night. And um, just then, another one of my college students calls me and says, a couple months later, he said, "Hey, I'm spending the summer at, at Trappist Monastery," and. Um, I'm spending the whole summer here as a monastic guest, so I'm getting up at three in the morning and going to, you know, and going to church eight times a day, and I'm helping them on their farm, and and I just suddenly blurted out, I said, I want to come, and he said, when? And I said, now. And then I thought, realized it was Wednesday, and I, I said, no, no, this weekend. And he said, okay, let me go talk to Brother John, and that was the first time I ever heard Brother John's name. So I went down that weekend, and I went the next weekend, and the next weekend, and finally I went um, down over the. Uh, Christmas of 1996 for three weeks, and uh, that's when the encounter happened between me and Brother John on Christmas Eve, and the magical umbrella, which later on in 2004 was the story that I used um, to win the Templeton Prize, the $100,000 Templeton Prize. And so what did Brother John teach me, and what is the purpose of life? You know, the purpose of life is we're all here for, I'm very dogmatic. I love to be dogmatic these days because nobody, you're not allowed to be dogmatic. So hold on to your seats here. I'm going to be very dogmatic. The purpose of every human life, whether you realize it or not, is we're all here to be transformed from selfish to selfless people. Um, You know, and if you're a Zen adept, you know, we're talking about getting rid of the ego or whatever. Or a mystic a mysticism, they talk about you know ego. But I'm talking about becoming a selfless person. And Brother John taught me with his umbrella uh, by standing outside on a cold Christmas evening, just in case I needed an umbrella. That and this is the subject of my essay, which is the subject of my new book. And what I'm saying in business, I, so I continue this theme of selflessness on into the into business secrets of the Trappist monks. And what I'm pointing out to business people. In that, uh, the business lessons there are what I learned from the Trappist monks is it is in your own self-interest to forget your self-interest. And the more successfully we forget our selfish motivations, the more successful we become. Now, this is not as bizarre as it may sound. Every great salesman, and I consider myself great enough, I was on the cover of Selling Magazine at one point, <laughs> um, Every great salesman knows that the more he forgets about his commissions, forgets about his product, forgets about his quota, and instead focuses on serving his customer, the commissions take care of themselves. Seek first the kingdom of heaven, and the commissions will take care of themselves. Every leader knows or should know that the more he forgets about getting himself promoted and instead fanatically focuses on getting other people promoted selflessly focus on getting other people promoted, the faster he gets promoted. And when corporations focus on serving their customers and forget about profits, the profits take care of themselves. And so this is the great paradox that the more we forget about ourselves, the better our lives run. 
the more we fanatically focus on ourselves, the more we end up getting in our own way, the more we end up stepping on our own feet. Um, and so this is the this is the great paradox, you know. Uh, the, so the more selfish, selfless we are, the better our own lives become, the happier we become. And I read just recently. I wish I'd have said it. He said uh, it's a famous quote um, that. Um, um, it's not uh, happy people who are grateful. It's grateful people that are happy. Mm, that's powerful. Right. And so, uh, you know, start by focusing on your gratitude and what you can do for, you know, for other people and for and, 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 and your life will run so much better. And this is, um, so what I ended up doing is over the years, I was getting these letters, one or two or three a year from people who had found Brother John oh, the essay, and they would tell me how this essay had gotten them through the death of a child or had helped them through a bad divorce. And then a year ago, August, um, a man showed up at my house who was vice president of a bank, actually BB&T Bank, and he showed up at my house to thank me for writing Brother John. And he'd, read, he'd driven six hours to thank me for writing Brother John. And he told me that his he had gone through this horrible divorce and had got to the point of suicide and had found Brother John that had sent him to the monastery where he'd read my other book. And when he was leaving, they, and he stayed with the monks for over six weeks in order to turn his life around. He took a sabbatical from his job. And on his way out, he asked for my address and drove all the way to Raleigh to thank me. And I told him, I said, I'm very, very humbled by you telling me this, but you're not, and you're not the first person, but I also feel guilty. He said, why would you feel guilty? I said, because I have a candle and it's under a bushel basket. You know, I feel strongly a moral obligation that if I'm helping a few people, why can't I? I should be the the essay should be helping many. So as soon as he left, um, I got I have a nonprofit corporation. I do all of my spiritual work, my book royalties, and everything go into my nonprofit corporation for the for the for helping other people. And um, I called the woman who runs it for me, and I said, Melissa, I said we've got to act on my my idea. So. Because I thought to myself, if I have this essay and it's 3,500 words long, it's not long enough for a book. But what if I made it an illustrated book? So the Lord sent me this uh, Glenn Harrington, who is an artist, who I've never met to this day, by the way. And he got excited about the project over the phone. And he went to Metkin on his uh, abbey, which is the monastery, on his own, took photographs of Brother John and all the monks. And he came back and, and he started working on it and said he really wanted to do the project. And I called my nephew who works for Scholastic in New York, and I said, Jamie, can you tell me, is this guy any good? He wants to really do the project, but it's a big decision. I'm not, I don't know much about art. He called me back a couple of days later and said, my God, he's famous. Everybody knows Glenn Harrington. He's done 400 books. He, we pay him $10,000 to do one painting for one cover of our books. And he wow. said, I'll do 22 full-color oil paintings of brother for Brother John. And so that's what he did. And so Brother John is my essay, uh, the $100,000 Templeton Prize winning essay, combined with 22 oil paintings from uh, Glenn Harrington. And it's been absolutely sensationally successful. It's just been, frankly, flying off the shelves. And uh, people love the art. And that's, in a lot of ways, that's what gives me the greatest, you know, um, satisfaction. And so anyway, that's, the, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> and it's an incredible story. I mean, it's just one amazing manifestation after another, right place, right time, um, with that depth of, like you're saying, just always honoring 
of what is next on the path for you to do that keeps your mission and your values uh, keeping you principle based. And that's something too, that I, I know you feel, you must feel strongly about. I know that I do. There was a a new thought minister that used to say for uh, many years, uh, never sacrifice principle, not even on a special occasion. When I think about how you were made that big offer and you turned it down because of those three children, you weren't willing to sacrifice your principle of commitment just because something else uh, apparently and was, you know, so much significantly as far as materialism of accomplishment. But I love, you know, what you said, had you not stayed the course with that, your whole life would be different than what it is right now. Absolutely. My first teacher was a Zen teacher, actually, and he used to always say that everything's commitment. He said, um, and he always talked about it, he said spirituality is a becoming process. It's not a learning process. Unfortunately, way too many of us think that we can do it through a book or even through, even through meditation. I mean, so much of it is action. You know, Aristotle said, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence is not a choice. It's a habit. It's how you behave over long. We, in the end, we are the sum total of the choices we have made. And um, and this is so so. It's incredibly important that exactly that you you stick to your guns, and uh, and have principles. But uh, but I think there's also um, the problem. People are. It's harder than ever to be that way because we're dealing with a crisis of meaning and purpose in our society. Um, the you know there was an article just recently in uh, New York Magazine about the opioid crisis, and the man had the you know the, the guts. I, I applaud him to say it was a, we're dealing with a spiritual crisis. And here, I'm going to read this quote real quickly from him. He said, This nation pioneered modern life. Now epic numbers of Americans are killing themselves with opioids to escape it. To see this epidemic as simply a pharmaceutical or addictive problem is to miss something. The despair that currently makes so many want to fly away. Opioids are just one of the ways Americans are trying to cope with an inhuman new world where everything is flat, where communication is virtual, and where those core elements of human happiness, faith, family, community, seem to elude so many. <clears throat> and, you know, and I've been saying this for a long time, and it's not just the opioid crisis. You know, we're looking at you know, young men that are shooting up schools or young men that are st- staying in their parents' basements until they're 35 years old playing video games. Um, alcoholism, you know, suicide is at all-time highs in our society. You know, they just came out recently and said that because of suicide and the opioid crisis, our life expectancies as Americans has gone down over the last four years. The Wall Street Journal just published a big article on the fact that the, the crisis, the latest crisis is loneliness, that so many people are living alone, especially older people, uh, interesting enough, the people that are suffering the most are college-educated women um, who are living alone in, in their older age, and this has all kinds of emotional and psychological and health consequences. And so, people treat most people treat each one of these issues as a one-off. I don't. I say it's all part of what this this what this man described for the epic for the spiritual crisis that is gripping for the opioid crisis. We're People don't have a sense of higher meaning and higher purpose in their lives. They don't have anything really worth living for. I just had a coaching, uh, somebody put a coaching client in front of me, and and the man um, is like 44, 45 years old, 
And he um, eventually told me that he had just uh, he sold his company and he was coming into $28 million. And from the moment he sat down, I said, whoa. I said, you're depressed, aren't you? And he said, yes. I said, I could feel it. He was deeply, deeply depressed. Money's not the answer. Yet every single time with any of these problems are discussed in the media, it's, oh, if we could just get the jobs going, if we just, everybody got raises. If I'm not against raises. I'm a capitalist. <laughs> right, exactly. But, but you know, it's not the, the one-all do-all. Uh, it has very little to do with it, ultimately. Right, right. You know, and you look at places like Bangladesh, and nobody commits suicide. You know, they were very low suicide. They're living on a dollar a day. Right. Um, and uh, the World Health Organization, by the way, called depression the number one issue facing Western civilization today. That's the number one health issue. I was teaching at Duke University, and the provost came in and gave us a uh, um, and I was part of the interfaith council there with all the other chaplains, and and uh, he came in and he said 25% of the incoming freshmen at Duke University are already on antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication or something. 25%. Duke is one of the top 10 universities in the country. It costs $70,000 to send your kid there for one year, and 25% of these kids are already on antidepressants. Something is rotten in Denmark. And to me, it's a, but it's a, as I talk about in my book, I'm not a negative person, you know. There's, this is an opportunity, too. This is an opportunity. This is the, the Lord calling us to a higher purpose in our life by frustrating our lower purposes. Oh, I, absolutely. I mean, you're just teaching raw data and truth right now. I mean, there's, I don't find what you're saying negative at all. It's just, and and we need more people to be able to see the overview, uh, which is why, you know, a lot of our communities over the last few years have been very engaged with uh, social, spiritual motivated action, uh, that of activism, uh, having a voice about, you know, gun control, having a voice about uh, the addictive problems, about um the chronic problems of uh, so much unhappiness, the upside down on education. Uh, it's very refreshing uh, for me to be talking with you today well, because the, we, we the, need more uh, successful people that people can't just, you know, put in a corner or say, oh, well, you know, you're just struggling to make it uh, because people do listen to people with credibility and a level of accomplishment. And um, we need more voices out there speaking the speaking the facts that spiritual truths will have the answer to. But we must start with the facts. It's it's wonderful speaking with you. And for all of those of you that are tuning in right now, we're talking with the incredible August Turak. And we will be right back after this short break. You can go to his website, augustturak, P-U-R-A-K dot com. And you definitely want to get the copy of Brother John. Practical spirituality. Positive messages. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. It takes you to power Unity Online Radio. If you'd like to make a positive difference in the world, you can by contributing to this global ministry. Unity Online Radio relies on listeners like you to support our broadcasts that send our messages out to an awakening world. 
go to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate Today. Here's a Unity Mindful Moment with Eric Butterworth, taken from the live lecture, A Course in Practical Metaphysics. Emily Cady, in her Lessons in Truth, makes a statement which I think we need to kind of think about a little bit. She says, God is not a being with qualities or attributes, but he is the good itself coming into expression as life, love, power, wisdom, etc. He is the good itself coming into expression as life, love, power, and wisdom. In other words, and this again is, is shattering to some of us, God is not loving. Ah, oh, God is a loving God. God is not loving. Because the moment we talk about God as loving, we've got the anthropomorphic Michelangelo like God sitting up on a crowd somewhere with his heart beaming out and saying, oh, I love you all down there, see so you're so dearly, as long as you're good. But I'm not going to love you very much if you don't go to church and so forth. God is not loving. God is love. To find out more about Eric Butterworth, visit unity.org. What if you could start each day with a positive outlook, remembering you are a divine expression of God? Daily Word is a booklet of daily devotionals offering positivity that's downright contagious. With a print subscription or by email, you can pause to reflect on how to practice spirituality in your human experience. Reading Daily Word takes about a minute a day, so you can feel uplifted every morning. Visit dailyword.com to subscribe. Daily Word has developed beautiful card decks to support your spiritual journey. One deck is about healing, another is about finding peace in troubled times, and the family cards are two decks, one for parents and one that can be colored on for children, so families can talk about spiritual principles together. The card decks are available from Unity. Go to unity.org, then click on Shop or call 1-800-24-UNITY Monday through Friday. Create a path to success and prosperity with May McCarthy and Abundance Incorporated every Thursday at 2 p.m. Central on UnityOnlineRadio.org. A co-founder of seven successful companies, an angel investor, best-selling author, and international speaker, May will help you each week with spiritual and practical tools you can use to create a life that you love with greater health, happiness, wealth, and freedom. Join the show live with your questions or listen later on demand right here on UnityOnlineRadio.org. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to The Intentional Spirit with Reverend Temple Hayes. And thank you, everyone, for being with us. I'm talking to an extremely successful CEO that has continued to balance his life with spirituality and economics and most of all, making a difference in the world by the willingness to allow the path to unfold before him. I'm talking with August Turak, and you can go to his website, August Turak, that's T-U-R-A-K.com, and you definitely want to get a copy of his newest book, Brother John, um, The Art uh, by the artist Glenn Harrington. It's just incredible. I just keep staring at it. It's just amazing. Um, that said, um, August, with all that you have been a part of, and this is on a very small scale, but there's very few people I can tell this story to, and, and they can appreciate it. Um, before I went into ministry, 
I, I've always been in sales and, and you already have figured out because I'm in ministry, I'm in sales, you know, it's just, you're selling just concepts instead of, you know, a product. But anyway, that being said, I was, um, really in that place of, of deeper meaning and waiting to figure out, you know, where I would actually go to ministerial school. So I took a job of selling commercials for this new concept called cable television. Ah. And I was selling commercials for ESPN USA and CNN and um, to the locals. And on national airtime, the local commercials would then take that place. And um, no one had ever heard of them. <laughs> and so many, so many people said, you know, I mean, you would get like for $800, $900, you would get aired for like six weeks, plus get your video made and just an unheard of value, right? And mm-hmm. people were going, well, I don't, I don't think anybody will ever watch. I mean, I don't think CNN will ever go anywhere. <laughs> oh, yeah. Back when ESPN first started out, there was nothing but uh, ping pong matches on it and stuff. I mean, right. uh, it was, uh, yeah, very, very primitive. I can remember being in New York in 1980 and going for a jog with a guy that I just met. And I said, what do you do for a living? And he said, I work for home box office, HBO. And I said, what's that? And he spent 20 minutes trying to explain it to me, and I still didn't understand what it was. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, the next thing I know, I'm working for this company. We owned uh, we owned the movie channel Nickelodeon, and uh, later on, oh yeah, year. definitely Nickelodeon. And then mm-hmm. we brought out MT- MTV Music Television on August 1st, 1981. So you know, I was there uh, for that, and it was a, a wonderful time. I really, you know, really, really enjoyed it. Um, but uh, you know, we were, we're getting back. You mentioned about uh, coming into this to the the idea of balancing, and you know, I actually have a slightly different idea, uh, which I get into in Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks. That you know, there's an old Zen saying, the monk, uh, which I really have pondered tremendously over the years. Your ordinary life is your spiritual is your spiritual life. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, of course, I disagree with because what they do is they try to say, well, you know, I'm, I, you know, I drink three fifths of whiskey a night, and since that's my ordinary life, that's my spiritual life. No, that's not an excuse for just not living intentionally spiritually, as, you, as your show is, uh, is about. But it does mean that somehow or another you, you, you figure out a way, as St. Paul would say, learn to pray always. And um, to me, I, as I point out, I said there's a w- wonderful ways in which you, if, you're, if you are conscious, if you are attentive, if you are mindful, that your business life is your spiritual life. You have tremendous opportunities in business to help people, to be of service to people, to, to employ people, to, to grow people. You know, and I, I tell the story in my, in my book about meeting this man, and he was the CEO of a, of a rapidly growing company, a mid, mid-sized company, $100, $500 million or whatever, and I said, what are you, what's your job description? And he said, well, if you follow me around all day long, you probably think I do a lot of things. He said, but I have only one job. I build passion. He said, passionate people can accomplish anything. He said, just pick up a newspaper every once in a while, and some 90-pound woman will pick a car up off her child because she cares. He said, said, my job is to provide the whys so my people can provide the hows. Mm -hmm. He said, once passion is in place, he said, my job is to make sure that people take enough vacation and stay the heck out of the way. 
And you know, and the job of leadership and and is to provide the whys. And you know, and I'm I'm, I'm including you and me because not just corporate leadership. It's your you're providing through your sales, your outreach. You're helping people to find the why in their life. Um, and and what are we here for? The old, all this debate. What are the fundamental spiritual questions? Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? What's my destiny? You know, why am I here? Why am I? You know, what am I supposed to be doing with my life? These are the big why questions. And getting back to the opioid crisis and all the other ills that we were talking about in the previous segment. It, to me, this is a failure in leadership, whether it's parents, whether it's our clergy, whether it's our corporate leaders, whether it's our politicians, whether ever, we're not providing the kind of uh, big-picture uh, overview whys for people anymore. And, um, and, and as individuals, we're not looking for them as the way we should be either. We're, we're, we're so completely addicted to the fact that if we just had enough money or if we just get another raise or, um, you know, that every, everything can be solved with money. And um, so I, it, it's the, my, my mission with my life is to help people find that, that higher purpose. And I keep telling corporate people that if you can, you, you know, you have to build this higher purpose into your business and when you do, you're going to find people get tremendously motivated, tremendously passionate. When we find that higher purpose, we're willing to make the sacrifices. And as a matter of fact, we're not. Um, you know, Yasutani Roshi, an old Zen master, said, he said, you know, he said, um, people think happiness is a life without struggle. He said, happiness is not a life without struggle. It's a life of constant struggle in the service of something worth struggling for. You'll love this quote if you don't know it already. Um, you remind me of that aspect of myself. I just feed off of, you know, powerful quotes and they just stay with me forever. Um, but I love the one by Howard Thurman that says, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive. Right. And go do that because what the world needs is people who have come on alive. And I, I couldn't agree in that beautiful. That's a wonderful quote, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more. And we think that we don't, we want a life without sacrifice. No, we don't want a life without sacrifice. No, we, we don't. We want a life of, of where we, of, we're the happiest when we are sacrificing. When we, that gives us our sense of purpose. We're sacrificing for something worth sacrificing for. That's what we're all looking for. We're, we don't want... I say little things, you know, if you talk about, you know, again, I'm going back to my dogmatism, you know, every child starts out screaming, mine, 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 you know, that's selfishness. And we're all on a, on a, a journey towards selflessness. And my proof of this is, you know, that when you talk about self-consciousness, you know, what is self-consciousness? It's never used in a good context. When you're self-conscious, you can't get out of your own way. You can't do a great performance. You can't make love. You can't enjoy a party. Self, what is depression? Depression is when you all you can think about is yourself. <laughs> You're so consumed with your own self that you can't. You can't, so. And when are we happiest? We're happiest when we lose ourselves in thought, when we lose ourselves in an activity, when we can forget ourselves. What is distraction? Distraction is when we can, you know, diversion or distraction is when we can get out of our, away from ourselves. So it's not selfishness that we want, it's selflessness that we want. 
Mm-hmm. And of course, you can make a mistake of of trying to you know you can drink yourself selfless, <laughs> but that's not that's a that's a dead end. What we're really looking for is the is the selflessness to go into the into the you know um, Saint Paul the that famous hymn of Saint Paul, where he says you know Jesus, um, even though he was God, didn't take on the trappings of God, but he he became a servant and humbled himself even to death on a cross. Well, the work the word for selflessness there, the, you know, the the sacri- is called kenosis in Greek, and it means to empty yourself, the self-emptying process. This is this is what we're all searching for, but we look for love in all the wrong places because we actually we make the, the the mistake of thinking that what we want is self-indulgence, that we want an easy life of self-indulgence with no challenges, etc. No, we want higher purpose. You know, we want to be on, you know, like the Blues Brothers said in that movie, I'm on a mission from God. <laughs> we want to be on a mission from God. We want a mission. We want to feel like as if, we were, you know, that our life matters and that we're doing something tremendously important and, and great. And, and, that, and that's the search. You know, the Buddha said, you know, the purpose of your life is to find the purpose of your life. But um, and I think that that's so incredibly. And I launched onto that when I was 20 years old. And you know, and I look now and I say, wow, so many of the things that I thought would be so that I'd love all my life, like sports. I'm not interested much in football and things that I thought were so important when I was a kid. But my interest in spirituality has done nothing but grow. It'll never let you down. <laughs> no, and it and I'm I'm with you. I mean, to me, my my number one. Uh, commitment is to remain a student and discover things about life and people and this planet that I don't know yet. I mean, I find that very invigorating and, and very mysterious. And to, you know, allow allow room for that is very powerful. I've met many a person in, in my life and especially younger people that, you know, have helped them get a bus ride with their dog or you know, reunite with their family or, you know, whatever. And and the only point is not to impress anyone listening, but just to make the point that if they were willing to listen, listen, I would give them this small moment of one of, to me, life's greatest discoveries. It takes just as much energy to be a failure as it does a success. As a matter of fact, it often takes more. more to remain a failure because you are living from the moments of the past instead of moving forward. Absolutely. You know, I wanted to mention, I just got this email or it came in through our website today. Um, and my, and Melissa who runs the nonprofit sent it over to me. I just posted it to, to, to Facebook and I put it under this. This is what I live for. And I said, this is the quote from the man. He said, Quote, my wife gave me a copy of Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks and Brother John for Christmas. I read Brother John and am well into the Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks. These books have stirred in me something which I can't explain. It is as if I walk through a door that immediately closed behind me. I am now hesitant to take a step forward along an unfamiliar road. I hope to take my first step seeking an authentically purposeful life. Thank you for sharing your experiences and insights. And to me, this, you know, I wrote back to him, and I, and I was just so moved by him, him writing this short little thing to me about, because I can understand not just his aspirations, um, I, you know, and that sense of a door, of, 
uh, of closing behind you because once you've gotten a, um, a, a taste for what's possible, for what the spiritual life could offer you, it becomes all impossible to go back to just saying, oh, I'll go back to my beer and my football game. Um, on the other hand, his fear also, I, I know exactly, the, you know, this is the fear of, uh, that I talk about in Business Secrets of the, of the hero's journey when you're being called to head out into the desert. Um, where Moses had to go out into the desert, and Jesus had to go out into the desert, and John of the Baptist had to go out into the desert. And this is a phase that Joseph Campbell talks about as part of the hero's journey. And and yes, there's who knows what's going to be out in that desert, and you're, we're afraid of loneliness, and you know who's going to understand? You know, nobody understood me. Why would I turn down the you know a, a great job in order to help a couple college kids, snot-nosed college kids? Um. But so I wrote to him, and I just encouraged him. I said, you know, this is this is absolutely worth it. It's an, I've been there myself, and I'm so glad that I did take those steps, and I let that door close behind me. But this is the uh, this is this is the, it's the adventure, and this is why it's such an incredible life to live. And if there wasn't a few things, uh, a few dragons that had to be slain along the way, then what fun would it be? <laughs> exactly. No doubt about it. Well, where do you see yourself um, moving forward? Do you have any any thoughts about, I mean, obviously you hold the space that you're living in a life that is ongoing instead of into any kind of processes of, of retirement. I know that's not a word that I feel have any desire to fulfill. Uh, do you have other things that are on the horizon? I mean, it, you've had a fascinating oh my God, life. I've, I've from- got a... Uh, you know, I've, I've, this everything has just been exploding. Uh, I'm just to give you a really quick. First of all, I'm committed to the to doing continue to do this work to help to find meaning and purpose. Now to get in for other people. Now to get into details. Next week I'm going to be at the Bush School of Business at uh, Catholic University because they're going to be building my work and my books into the curriculum there. Uh, the following week I'm going to be in New York City and I'm going to be doing television and. Uh, I'm working with a company up there that wants to do a television show based on the, uh, Brother John and about this, uh, about the meaning and purpose stuff. Um, I'll be doing some podcasts. And in March, I'm going on a, um, a tour of South America, giving speeches at universities in South America. And I've been joking about the fact that I know 47 words in Spanish, so I'm going to need them all to give very, very subtle philosophical talks in Spanish in, in South America. But no, they're telling me I can speak in English. Um, yeah. So you know, so I've got so many uh, opportunities to to, uh, to carry this out, and so I'm just being again. I'm, but you know, I said in, but I think there's a, 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 you know, one of the things I want to really emphasize is that in 1998 I went through this two-year dark night of the soul uh, that I that I alluded to earlier, and then I had this cat. What I can only describe as this cataclysmic spiritual experience in 1998, uh, a mystical experience. And uh, it was happening, believe it or not, if you believe in accidents, it happened on Easter. And um, uh, actually, it happened on Good Friday and then went through Holy Saturday. And then by Easter, I was put back together again. And and um, it was so tremendously profound that it took me almost a year to get my feet back on the ground after it. But, you know, I had fought depression all of my life from the age of 14, and it finally overcame me. And uh, and when I had that skydiving accident, and from that date in 1998, Easter of 1998 to this date, I've never had a, 
a moment of depression or any kind of um, anxiety or anything like that. And I said in my business, Secrets of Trappist Monks, I said, you know, it's the, I said, Trappist Monks just don't make success happen. They know how to let success happen. And I said, that might be the most important lesson I want to teach you in this book, or they're going to teach you in this book. And this is what my life has become. You know, I, I, you know, I don't have, I just take one day at a time. A few years ago, I, I go to the gym every morning at 8 a.m. and I work with a personal trainer. And a few years ago, I went to the gym and, and uh, as I was got there, there was a man there that was handing out towels. I've never seen him before, and I've never seen him since. And they don't usually hand out towels, but this man was handing out towels. I reached out, took a towel, and he held on to the other end of the towel. And he looked me right in the face, and he hissed, If you could be anywhere doing anything, where would you be doing what right now? And without an instant, instantaneously, I said, I'd be right here, right now, doing this. Mm-hmm. And he let go of the towel, and I walked down the hallway, and my eyes filled with tears. And I said, my God, that came from the deepest part of me. Um, I I really profoundly knew at that moment I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to do with my life, every minute of every day. Um, I know it sounds pretentious. I just did an interview. Uh, Somebody sent me some interview questions, and they said, "What's what's my daily rituals? And I said, my daily ritual is my life. Mm hmm you know, I want to leave your listeners with something I, I, which may some people may find it is kind of uh, corny, but I loved it. I went off to study theology a couple of years ago at St. John's University. I started a master's program just for the fun of it, really. And a young woman uh, gave us a little homily one day, and she started with the quote from the Bible, Be still and know that I am God. So she started out, she said, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Mm-hmm. Be still and know that be still I be. And, um, and and to me, you know, I don't. Uh, yes, I'm really busy, and I've got all these. You know, I got a couple other book ideas and all this cool stuff. But on the other hand, um, I you know, I I just I'm just being. You know, and if it all evaporated tomorrow. Um, yeah, you know, I don't want that to happen, but that's not where I'm centered anymore. Um, and I said, you know, the first, I said in the same interview question, I said, you know, in the first 30 or 35 years of my life was about the becoming process. It was about pushing and achieving and, and searching and hungering for and fi- and hopefully finding. Uh, I'm talking about spiritually here. I said, now my, my path is much more a path of being. You know, um, the archetypical masculine is the becoming, and the archetypical feminine is the being. Mm. And much more of my life now is just being me and letting things unfold, you know, of the way, you know, not just making success happen, but letting things happen. And uh, one of the quotes from um, Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks is, I said, uh, the more I, uh, the less I worry about money, the more money I make. Just a couple of years ago, one of some of my Duke students asked me to help them out uh, on a company they were starting in New York City. They had graduated, and they were up in New York, and they called me up, and they said, can you help us you know, get our sales off the ground? I said, sure. So I went up to New York, and they said, the problem is we can't pay you. I said, oh, that's all right. I'll help out. Just pay my expenses. They said, okay. I said, give me some stock. And they said, okay, we'll give you some stock. So they gave me a big boatload of stock. Now, they were all in one room. It was a tiny little company. And I came home after about four or five months, 
and I thought to myself, well, you know, I can paper the wallpaper, wallpaper my house with this with this stock. You know, I mean, God bless them; they're great kids, and I wish them the best. But you know, but lo and behold, a few years later, they go public for one point three billion dollars. The stock's twenty seven dollars a share. Uh, you know, and I, here I thought I was doing an act of charity. I was doing an act of kindness. I was doing an act of selflessness. And it all and it comes back. You know, it's like the book. It's like the um, story of Job, where you know, everything that that um, Job gives up, God gives him back ten times over. But again, the the, the trick is, it's it's easy to to um, talk about living a life of faith living your life for a higher power, not comp- as you put so eloquently, not compromising your principles. But it's extremely hard to live it. And the thing that I come back again and again when I look at the monastery, or whether it's the Marine Corps or Alcoholics Anonymous, all the models that I use in my book, uh, which I call transformational organizations, what do they all have in common? They don't try to do it alone. You need your community. You need your church. You need... You know, and not just the kind of church where you go and, you know, you happen to share a pew with somebody once a week. Right, or you could just go through the motions and, and sleep and go home. <laughs> right. You need you need teachers. You need mentors. You need uh, people who can kick your you-know-what when it needs a kicking and, and give you the kind of hand up and encouragement and hug when you need that hug. And, and you need the kind of people that you can turn to who are going to say, listen, you know, um, we're, we're your support group, who aren't going to completely, always constantly undermining you, know, undermining you or whatever. But the amazing thing is, is that everywhere, everywhere I look in our lives, we, we, if we want to lose weight, we join a group. If we want to learn to dance, we join a group. If we want to get in shape, we join a group. Um, we understand it, but when we try to do our spiritual challenges, come up, we say we're going to do it alone. <laughs> That's a great point. It's very true. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we try to live our spiritual lives com- completely idiosyncratically. Um, and one of the things, of course, the, the, one of the temptations of living your life, your spiritual life idiosyncratically is you're not accountable. We don't want to be accountable to anyone else. We want, we, you know, so if we don't get up for church on Sunday morning, who's going to call us out on it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, it's like the story of the two guys that skipped church that went every week and they called in, said they were sick and they couldn't be deacons and they were playing golf and one guy hit a hole in one and the other guy said to the other, well, I, th- I thought you were saying the angels are going to punish him somehow for missing church and lying. And he said, well, he just hit that hole in one. Who's he going to tell? <laughs> <laughs> love that. It's been a a pleasure having this rich and and wonderful conversation with you, August Turek. I've really appreciated our time together and thank you for what you're doing uh, to make your mark in so many different ways and being just a great role model. Thank you so much for being on our show today. And those of you tuning in, as always, we appreciate you and Tune in to templehays.com and find out the various uh, trips that we're taking uh, in Europe as well as uh, otherwise, Spirit at Sea. And thank you for joining us on firstunity.org to find out about our various activities. Um, August Turek, that's T-U-R-A-K. Go to his website and find out more information 
about him and what he's doing and his tours. And uh, he is a very active person. So, August, you want to close us out with a final thought? Well, I'd like to to repeat what is something I said, which is, it is in your own self-interest to forget your self-interest. And the longest of journeys begins with a, with a single step. So start your intentional spirituality today, right now. And do it by, by ordering Brother John, a monk, a pilgrim, and the purpose of life. <laughs> yeah, Thank go on so the website and, and purchase this book. It not only is a wonderful gift for you, but it's a gift that you can give time and time again to other people. And I'm telling you, if you can just see the art um, along with the essence of it, it's just uh, tremendously uh, powerful, and it will be a blessing not only in your life but with in other people's lives. Again, everyone, I want to thank you so much for being uh, part of the show, and thank you for always uh, bringing guests that uh, touch our lives and open our heart in a deeper and and greater way. We are truly blessed by having you uh, as part of our experience and this online spirituality that we do together every week. It's a pleasure to serve you. Thank you so much. And thank you, August. Many blessings. I enjoy it every minute. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries, sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify.